Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. We never meant to be farmers. That's the truth of it. You know, where we've seen our lives get to nowadays is not where we expected to end up. Hello, it's Jimmy Doty here and welcome to another episode of On Jimmy's Farm. This is the podcast where we discuss environmental issues and try and give everyone a slice of the good life. Now, I've come down onto the River Deben today with my dog, Whiskey. She's a beautiful Irish terrier. I've just come to have a look at the amazing bird life. And it's staggering. There is so much activity out there. There's widgeon, I can see some shell ducks, and of course, the beautiful curlews that we get here in Suffolk. They've got this long, sickle-shaped bill which is dipping into the mud, looking for tasty tidbits. Look at them, lovely. Now, I sound a bit croaky today. That's because I have got a cold. I can't believe it. I haven't had a cold in ages. It's quite retro now, I think, having a cold. But hopefully that'll pass a couple of days and fresh air will help me recover. But on today's episode, I've got two wonderful guests, which I'm going to talk to you about in a minute because I've got something really exciting to tell you about. And that is a brand new book club from History Hit. And I want you guys to sign up. The link is in the description of this episode. It all starts on the 1st of April. But the first book, I just love the title of it. It's called Scoff, and it's by Penn Vogler. The history of food and class in Britain, which I just think is a brilliant way of looking at our society. Now, as a History Hit Book Club member, you'll get a £5 Amazon voucher for the book. You'll get free access to History Hit events, live Q&As with authors, regular emails. There's an online coffee morning. I mean, it's endless. It sounds like a proper party, doesn't it? So get involved, as I say, the link is in the description of this episode. Now on to my guests today. Two really inspirational women, first time farmers, and that is Lynn Castle and Sandra Bear. And we discuss their journey 
into farming, their ideas about farming, why they wanted to get involved with farming. And they started in quite a difficult situation. I mean, they chose a farm in Scotland, Lynbrett Croft it's called, and it's quite a tough place to farm up there in this particular area of Scotland. And they discuss the highs and lows and also share their experiences and tips to anyone else that wants to start farming. So I hope you enjoy this episode and then I'll see you all back here on the banks of River Deben. So Lynn and Sandra, welcome to the podcast on Jimmy's Farm. Great to be here, we're really excited. Well look, I've got your lovely book. It is fantastic. They're, both of you are on the cover with a beautiful Highland cow and the book is called Our Wild Farming Life. Adventures on a Scottish Highland Croft. So tell me, how did you get involved with farming? Because you're not from farming backgrounds, are you? No, and I suppose that's the million dollar question, Jimmy. You know, how did we get into farming? And actually, it's quite interesting because the book, the very first sentence in the book says, we never meant to be farmers because that's the truth of it. You know, where we've seen our lives get to nowadays is not where we expected to end up. Sandra and I met when we were living and working down just outside Maidenhead, down in the southeast of England, working and living on a National Trust estate as rangers. And we really had this kind of shared dream of living closer to nature, living off the land, did exactly what your mum and dad tell you never to do, which was quit our jobs, followed our dreams, founded ourselves in Scotland. And then after a couple of years looking for some land, we found and fell in love with this place that is now Limbrett Croft. And I guess the reason why we ended up kind of going into farming rather than just following the I guess the self-sufficiency dream was that Limbrecht Croft is 150 acres. We were looking for five acres. So what, does that make it like 15 times, 20 times? I don't know, my maths isn't very good, but a lot bigger than we expected. So we had a decision to make and we had a decision that was either, do we do the self-sufficiency and then just look out at the other 149 and a half acres and just watch it do its own thing? Or do we actually do the self-sufficiency thing, but actually see if we can somehow work with a team of animals to improve nature, improve biodiversity, but also produce food for the local community? And that's kind of the route we've gone down to. Hence, we're now farmers. It sounds like you've had a roller coaster of a ride. But tell me, what is your background? Where did you both start there? Because you said you work for the National Trust, but tell me a bit more about that. I think it's safe to say that probably Lynn and I both took the long way around to get to where we are now. And even to get to being rangers as well, that took a few years down the career path to get to there. I grew up in Switzerland. My mum's Scottish, my dad's Swiss. And I did what everyone does there. You know, you go and do an apprenticeship. And I wanted to be a forester, but at 14, 15, quite impressionable. And people saying, that's probably not the best thing for you to do as a a young girl. I listened to them and then went and worked in a library instead. (laughs) (laughs) Really? So were you one of those shushes? Were you one of those, you're like, shh. (laughs) They wanted me to be that. So that's probably why I quit. (laughs) (laughs) Does it ever come out when someone's talking, you go, shh, oh, I don't work in the library anymore. (laughs) I do it to Lynn now and again. Sure, she does. <laughs> it was fine. It didn't suit me too well. I'm, I'm a bit too active to sit in a library, I think, although I did enjoy you know, access to all the information. But I then went to Canada and worked on a ranch, horses and cattle, and that kind of awakened that kind of idea of, of working on the land. And also the, the Canadian pioneer spirit is very much alive there still and ignited a bit of a spark in me, I think, and nothing was ever the same again afterwards. 
And after returning to Switzerland and working in an office again, thinking this really can't be it, I thought, right, nature first, go and become a ranger in England. And that's what happened. Wow. So that's so interesting that you got that. That was already in you, the love of the great outdoors in forestry. But off you go to become a librarian. And then off to Canada and it ignites that spirit again. And what about yourself, Lynn? Yeah, I suppose in some ways sort of similar, but very different at the same time. I too sort of had this love of outdoors when I was kind of growing up as a kid, but I ended up taking a route of studying archaeology. So I finished school, stayed there till I was 18, went and studied archaeology at university, worked a bit as an archaeologist at the time, but I just knew it was never right for me. And so I ended up kind of jump into all these different careers. I, you know, I travelled abroad. I worked at a ski resort. I worked as a youth worker, all sorts of different things. And then basically started volunteering one time at a local National Trust property and fell in love with the idea of becoming a ranger and then decided to completely change my career and then start a job as an apprentice ranger. So it was kind of leading me back to, I think, where I was when I was, you know, a teenager growing up. Working as both as rangers is an interesting job because you're out all the time, aren't you? You're out in the countryside. And the National Trust, I'm a member, it's a great organisation. But isn't it funny, even though you are both got those roles where you're outside in the countryside and you're fulfilling that sort of, scratching that kind of itch, I suppose, but you're still not convinced it's not right there's something still missing and I understand that completely I had a love of the great outdoors and I loved wildlife and all that kind of stuff and it took me into academia and I ended up reading for a PhD in entomology but there was always something that wasn't quite right and I had a love for traditional rare breeds and I wanted to start a farm and until you iron out those creases you're never really happy are you but there's a big difference between that urge inside and a dream to actually becoming a reality. So how did you go about from leaving as rangers and then getting a croft, getting a farm? What was your transition? Well, I suppose we didn't have a pot of gold. That's the first thing to say. So we didn't, we weren't able to just sort of go, oh, well, we're just going to leave our jobs and, you know, we'll do whatever it was that we want we had to really think it through. So when we left our jobs at the National Trust, at that time, Sandra had just got a six-month position up in Scotland on the Isle of Arran with the National Trust for Scotland at the time. So basically, that bought us six months of, you know, something to give us a little bit of income. And then we sort of hopscotched onto jobs from that point in Scotland, which meant that we had a bit of money coming in, but we were in the country that we could start to look. And basically we set, I think it was the 1st of January 2015 was the day that we said, right, that's when we're going to start actually looking for some land. And we just every day trawled the internet. We had spreadsheets, we had lists of every single property agent in Scotland. And basically I think our criteria was anywhere in Scotland and what was it, a few acres or something? I think, you know, there was nothing really, like, that was it. It was literally our own criteria. And we just spent every night, and you know, looking, trawling the internet, everything, until we eventually started to find a few places where we thought, right, we're interested in that. And we'd literally just take day trips. And I remember, you know, it's funny, we were talking about this the other day, we'd come up and maybe try and find sort of four or five properties to look at in an area over a weekend. And we'd just chuck the tent in the back of a, in the back of a little Volkswagen Polo that we had 
we go and look at a few places and then we try and find somewhere to wild camp overnight. And the other day we drove past a, a forestry commission car park that we'd camped in. I'm not sure that was entirely legal, but you know, it was stuff like that that we did. We just thought we, we've just got to make this happen. And we just really enjoyed the ride at the time. And then eventually found Limbrek, didn't have all the money to buy it. So we literally had to empty every part of cash that we had asked for help from sort of friends and family and somehow managed to literally get the penny we needed at the very last minute. The reason I asked that question of transition is because when you read your fabulous book, the details are in there. And of course, you're on BBC Two's This Farming Life. It's easy for viewers and readers to suddenly just sort of go, oh, so you left your job and you got a farm. Like you just go pop down the shop and find a farm. It's really difficult to find the farm that is right, has all the elements that right to your business, but equally that you love and it feels like home. It's difficult. And then, of course, you've got all the challenges of actually starting the farm. You don't get the keys and all the animals are there and it all kicks off. And there's a big difference between wanting to be self-sufficient and then running a business, isn't there? There's a big difference between sort of those complete guide to self-sufficiency by John Seymour. And when you read that, it sells you a beautiful dream of having a house cow and growing some veg and all that kind of stuff. But if you want to be self-sufficient, you have a job and you do that at the weekends or whatever else, or you try and live a little bit off the land as much as possible. But actually running a farm to be a business is a totally different thing. So what were the big challenges for you? Probably the the biggest challenge was not coming from farming stock and knowing pretty much nothing about farming. Equally, in hindsight, looking back now, it was actually quite a good thing as well. In a way, it was lucky that we didn't come with preconceptions and ideas of what we wanted to do and how we wanted to do it. You know, you were talking about finding the right place to farm. And obviously, to be honest with you, when we moved to Limbrek, we didn't really know that we were going to be farming, but we knew that that was the right piece of land. We just felt it. One of the things that's not really a head decision, you just know it's right. But we then had to step up our game when we thought it was, you know, it was a lot of land to look after and much more than we needed to be self-sufficient. But what we then were able to do was build our business around the land. The land dictated what was going to be possible. So knowing nothing about farming wasn't necessarily that bad but being able to understand the environment gave us a step up we just went with what the land dictated and you know it's much easier to work with it than to force your views onto it and have a business that then stands on shaky feet so we just went with our instincts a lot of the time and a lot of advice from farmers and friends and a lot of reading and things and making mistakes and a lot of the time just jumping in at the deep end. And, you know, it's an ever evolving vision. It's an ever evolving business as well. You know, nothing is set in stone. We tweak things when we have to still do. And I'm sure that will be kind of how it will go from now on as well. But yeah, it's learning that it's a very organic process, farming, and you never finish. It's always, it's always growing in some way. The interesting thing of not having farming experience or from a farming background, there's definitely pros and cons to that. I mean, the cons are the fact that you haven't got a mother or father from a farming background say, listen, this is what we've always done. This is what your grandfather did. And you grow up with it and all the basic stuff. It's in your blood in a way that, you know, it's just second knowledge. 
But not coming from a farming background, in some ways, it's like having a little bit of freedom because I know so many farmers that are constantly having arguments with their siblings or with their parents saying, I want to try this. No, we're not doing that. We've always done it this way. We're not changing. So it can be really constraining. I often meet sort of farmers that are in their 60s and, you know, then they go, oh, no, father's going to be here later. And he suddenly turns into a 15-year-old. There is that top-down pressure from the generation above to say, you know, stick with what you're doing. This is what we've always done. But I think particularly today with the environmental issues, farming has to be quite fluid. So coming to it with no preconceptions or constraints is quite good, isn't it? There's lots of downfalls. I mean, I, I put fences upside down and I didn't know what I was doing and all this kind of stuff. But you quickly learn by your mistakes because otherwise you go out of business. So you've got to quickly learn, haven't you? But what about the farming community? Have they been really supportive and new entrants coming into the industry? Yeah, I mean, in terms of the community around us, I think we were really fortunate that they just embraced us straight away. And I think it was a two-way relationship that was set up from the start. So we're new to the area. We don't know anybody. We've no family. We've no friends in this area. So what we didn't want to do was come in saying, this is how it's going to be done. You're all doing it wrong. That was just not something that we wanted to do. We wanted to meet people. We wanted to get friendly with people. We wanted to learn from them, genuinely learn and understand the climate, the challenges of living and working here. And I think that really helped us from the start was to just try and blend in. In terms of other support, external support, we were really lucky to get into farming at the time when there was quite a bit of support available for people like us. So we were new entrants and young farmers. There were different pots of money that we could apply for that would help us to, you know, renovate some of the old buildings, put fences in. We put ours in the right way around. You'll be glad to know. <laughs> that was a tip from local farmers. That was because we got a contractor to do it. Yeah, that's because we got a contractor. <laughs> You're not supposed to say that, but yeah, so that was really kind of crucial for us was that kind of injection of cash plus the support from people around us that kind of blended together and helped us get in. But it was really, really challenging because at the start, I would say, if anything, okay, lack of finance was obviously a big challenge, but just that lack of confidence because we were asking so many people, we were getting so many different inputs. And I think what was really interesting was we took all of that on board and we let it all kind of sink in and we kind of, you know, digested it and thought about it a lot. But what we also did was we started to think, well, look, what feels right in our hearts from what we know and what we knew, Jimmy, was we knew ecology, we knew nature because we'd been working as rangers. And so what we did was we took what we kind of knew from nature and then we took about, you know, what we instinctively felt was right. And then bits and bobs of information that we took from those around us and basically blended all those together to what has made the model at Limbrek, which is pretty unique in terms of what we do because it fits our land, it fits our context, but yet still works in the landscape that we live and work in. That's really interesting. Coming from it as a you know ecological background, it's quite similar for my way of thinking because I did ecological entomology and... I wanted to blend traditional farming methods, traditional breeds, but with ecology in mind. And 
I started doing lots of filming as I got to travel to lots of other farms. And I visited a chap called Joel Saladin, who runs Polyface Farm. And I visited him about 15 years ago. And it's only when I met him that I thought, actually, what I'm doing, actually, it makes sense now because I'm not the only one. There's other people around doing this sort of stuff. And now today you see lots of people talking about regenerative farming. And that's exactly what you guys are doing. So explain to me what that is. I love that you mentioned Joel Salton because he's been a massive influence on what we do. So I think basically the best way to describe regenerative farming in its purest and most simplest form is is it's a way of producing food that regenerates everything as it goes. So it regenerates the land, but it also regenerates the people, the social element, the community in which the kind of the food that you're producing feeds. For us, we kind of stumbled across regenerative farming back in kind of really a few months after we'd arrived here, which was 2016, which was a time when nobody was really talking about regenerative farming. And we were looking around Scotland and, you know, who is there that's doing it? And there really was just a handful of people that were really kind of taking this approach and genuinely trying to understand and look at the land from a nature point of view, but also, you know, while continuing on with the food production and looking at the real kind of long-term benefits rather than kind of short-term gains. It was looking at the real long-term benefits, not just for the land, but for our own health as well. And so we really got into this movement and then came across Joel Salah and read his book, You Can Farm, which is just the most incredible book because it's really easy to read and it's kind of written as he speaks which is no nonsense, uh, but full of warmth um, and love and passion. And really, that was a really interesting angle for us into not just the farming side in terms of producing food, but also in terms of running it as a business. Joel's talking about that regenerative farming looks at regenerating your finances as well, so that, you know, every year you actually have more coming in rather than more going out, which a lot of people don't realise is very common in farming. There are very few farms today that can really genuinely stand on their own two feet without any annual basic payment subsidies to support them. So, you know, the regenerative element just started to grow and grow and grow. And so we just really liked this. We thought, yeah, this is great. You know, we can produce great food for the community that keeps them healthy. We can increase biodiversity across the land, you know, that keeps the world healthy. And, you know, we can pay the bills, you know, and that stops us from stressing like crazy. So it keeps us healthy. So, you know, it's all these kind of elements that just made so much sense. And it was just so clear and obvious and unconvoluted and uncomplicated that we thought that's the only route we can take. Yeah, and I think what Joel taught us as well is basically the best way to save money is not to spend it. And it was a big thing at the beginning, not knowing what we were doing. We weren't sure, you know, what kind of infrastructure do we need? Do we need to buy machines? What do we have to do to the land to start farming it? Because it had, you know, lain derelict pretty much for 30, 40 years. I mean, the whole croft hadn't been used for that long. And we're starting to look at the cost of things. And it was just mind boggling. And having no confidence in knowing how to make those decisions, we were a bit stuck. And it was this regenerative farmer on the west coast of Scotland who we went to visit. And he said to us, look, just work with what you've got. Get yourself some cows, get yourself some electric fencing and just start. And that's what we did. Rather than ploughing up our fields, you know, on, on, a, on a slope where we might have lost, you know, half our soil in the first season and reseeding with something that might not have grown in the climate we're in. We got some highland cattle and some electric fencing and just gave it a go. And we're probably completely naive, you know, <laughs> not knowing what we were doing, but we learned along the way. And it was a small startup cost 
and it's done so much for our land already in those few years. So keeping it simple really is the way to go. Yep. The important thing is that you mentioned it is that it's paying the bills and that is really important. I know lots of farming friends that have got 2,000 acres and they don't make any money. The payments they get from the government that keep them going are not also the value of their land and the property they've got they can borrow money against. But when you walk around Joel's farm and you talk to him, you get the concept and you understand it and you see the figures and how it pays and how it works. A lot of it is you've got to process the animals and sell direct to the public and all that kind of stuff. But even when I went and had a cup of coffee in the, in the town, I'd spoke to another farmer and, I, and he said, oh, what are you doing here from the UK? And I said, I'm visiting Joel's farm, Polyface Farm. He said, yeah, he's crazy. That's, you know, that's madness. He can't feed the world like that. The consensus of the conventional farmers that he's, he's a lunatic. It's only down to him writing books and stuff that pays for it. But they stop criticising when they see that he actually, it makes sense that it pays the bills. Is he going to feed the world like that? No, not as it's being fed at the moment. He's not completely. You know, he's not going to be supplying Tesco's and Sainsbury's and all the... can't do that. But he can serve the local community and preserve biodiversity. Because what it's all about, I suppose, is that we see regenerative farming as some sort of new type of farming. I think it's just the type of farming that was practiced before the industrialization of farming. When you look at farmers before the Second World War or the First World War even, there's a beautiful book called The Farming Ladder about two brothers that took on a farm when the farmer went off to fight in the Great War and they took his laying hens on and believed in certain principles that we see today in regenerative farming. So I think it's going back to basics and copying how ecosystems work. Yeah, absolutely. And I think as well, you know, Jimmy, it's about actually taking it right back to basics and reigniting and reconnecting ourselves with where our food comes from. Okay. One thing I think I found really interesting, you know, so our dream was always self-sufficiency. We're going to grow our own food. And then you think of what the job is of a farmer or what the expertise is of a farmer. And a farmer's expertise is in growing and producing food. That's what your kind of expertise is. How many farmers do we know in this country today? It's more commonplace, I think, in other countries. But how many farmers do you know that produce all of their own food? Because that should be their expertise, you know? And so you think, well, even farmers aren't producing food for themselves. And quite often, the food that they do produce is a monoculture crop. So all of a sudden, you start to look at those connections with their own food and their own product. And you start to see how separate that is from nature, because nature always looks after itself, but for the benefit of everything else and functions in diversity. That's the absolute antithesis, the basis of all nature. So we've lost that right at the very grower producer level. And those are the kind of questions that I think that are the areas that we need to look at. And I think as well, I, I love the fact that you've brought up this point of feeding the world. You know, we get this a lot. We get, of, oh, well, you're never going to feed the world with a muckle of cows and, you know, a few hens and... No, we're not. We're never going to feed the world. But what is our world? Because if a farmer 
stands in their house and they look out of the field and they know that they're losing money, they're hemorrhaging money, but they're getting this constant pressure of, yeah, but you've got to produce more because you've got to feed the world. It's too much. And you have to start reassessing and reevaluating in your own personal context. What does that mean to you? And to us, our world is what we have here, you know, ourselves, each other, and then our community around us. So we actually believe that we do feed the world because we feed ourselves from the produce that we grow in our kitchen garden and the meat that we produce. And we contribute to feeding our local community. So any surplus produce of eggs, of meat that we process on site and sell direct is feeding the community. So actually we feed the world. I think feeding local communities is really important. And when we see arguments about feeding the world, when we think about starving people in countries, are we exporting food to feed them? No, we're not. We're producing commodities for wealthy countries. And also we're growing oils for biofuels or we're wasting half the food we produce. We're seeing obesity go through the roof. There are more obese people than are malnourished. So I think we're producing far too many calories anyway. But one thing we're not looking at is our natural commodities, our ecosystems. But we've seen a paradigm shift, haven't we? So we're seeing inputs going through the roof with a terrible crisis at the moment in Ukraine. So fuel prices going up, fertilizer prices going up, how the government is going to pay farmers in the future. That's all changing. So your type of farming is now where it used to be seen as a bit of wishy-washy, you know, want to live the good life, is now actually a really, really viable way of producing food. One thing I wanted to ask you is that I've gone along your journey about sort of 20 odd years ago now, but what advice would you give people that want to start farming and, and get into farming? It's a really good question, isn't it? It's a million dollar question. I think actually that for people that want to get into farming, it is challenging. We can't hide from that fact. And it is challenging because availability of land, availability of tenancies is a real issue for people to get back on the land. But I think it's something whereby you have to look at people that are doing it and go and visit them, go and speak to them. That's the first thing that we did, I think, was start to try and, you know, find who was doing what it was that we were doing and learn from them. And if you can't go and visit them, you know, you read them. So, you know, we were reading books by Joel Salatin. We were reading books by Richard Perkins, you know, all the people that we just thought were kind of great and were doing exactly what we wanted to do. And then I think you just have to keep on it. I can't say, oh, this is the exact route that you need to take because I think everybody has a different path in life to follow. But I think you just need to keep very, very focused and keep looking at exactly where it is that you want to go and then when you do get into you know you do find some land or you are able to access a tenancy or you're able to get you know land on a croft which is what we got then it's about looking at the land that you have and then as Sandra said using one of the bits of best advice that we were given and it's work with what you've got. Yeah and I think as well as thinking about where you're going to be selling your food to and obviously keeping it as local as possible is going to be beneficial for your business and your community keeping supply chains short knowing exactly where you're selling to sell directly to a customer rather than having middlemen benefit from all the hard work you've put into it and probably getting the lion's share of the income but then also from a land point of view is look at your land and think what does it need? How can you work with it to produce something in the most simple of ways using the least amount of inputs and the least amount of equipment? And think of your land not in 2D, but think of it in 3D. So rather than seeing a field in front of you and just thinking of it as somewhere to grow grass or crops, think higher than that. Think of trees, fruit trees and things, anything to produce more food from the same amount of land 
and stack your enterprises. Mm -hmm. You know, a field can yield beef and sheep and pork and eggs, chickens, fruit. And if you move things around continuously, they'll all benefit each other as well. And imagine the amount of food you can produce from very little land. Yeah, absolutely. You've got to see it as a multifaceted thing, haven't you? Yeah, definitely. That kind of multi-layered thing. And I think it is about really staying true to what it is that you believe is the right thing to do. You know, we recently had, you mentioned at the start, you know, our book that's just come out and we had a a review in the Telegraph, which was utterly terrifying. But it ended up, we got a five-star review in the Telegraph and it was actually written by a farmer who farms in the south of Scotland, who's also a sort of a part-time writer journalist with the Telegraph. And he said, you know, he came to visit us last year. And in this review, he said... I totally prejudged these girls as being good lifers, as being lifestylers. And, you know, he said he approached the farm and he said this is some of the most, the difficult farming country that he's ever been to. He said that anybody trying to farm here would have to be certifiably mad. We like to wear that badge. (laughs) Um, But he said, you know, it's beautiful, but wow, how on earth do you farm here? And then he goes on in the review to say, actually, but when I went there, I saw how they were carving this multi-layered business and producing pork, producing beef, producing eggs, producing honey, growing vegetables in what is a very, very, very challenging climate. And then, you know, a few sentences later, he said, they're right. They know what they're doing. And he then goes on to say, but if they had have chosen commercial farming, they would not be running the business that they are. They would not be working there full time and they would not be producing food in this way. And it was a real kind of, you know, sort of spine tingling kind of goosebump moment to read that back and just go, you know, all that doubting that we did, all that, you know, is this the right thing? But really all we were doing the whole time was trying to replicate natural processes, was working with the land that we were in and working with what we had. And to read that back was just crazy, crazy good. That's fantastic. I would always say to people that just believe in yourself, don't be scared and read as much as you can, you know, like inspirational books like Joel's, uh, you know, from Polyface Farm. But also I would now say read your book because it gives people that inner strength to say, I can do this. I can do this. Reading about other people's stories is a massive inspiration to people. So I think, you know, hats off to you guys. You've done a fantastic job. So listen, what is next? What's next for you guys? Retirement? <laughs> Not ready for that yet, no. <laughs> No, I think I always like to say that what I'm looking forward to next is actually finding a bit of farming routine on our land and in our lives. It's all been quite wild. You know, it's been very busy and lots of new things happening every year. And then the book happened as well. And what I think we just want to have next is a year of just living in sync with the seasons and letting our business run and actually enjoying what we've built, finding a bit of time to just, you know, sit out in the field and watch the cows munch on their grass and take it all in. And that's what I'm looking forward to next. Enjoy what you've created. Yeah, absolutely. It's not a very British thing to say, but we have done so much and we've really grafted over the last few years. You know, we've grafted for everything that we have and, you know, maybe kind of having a bit more time to just sit back and appreciate it with the cold beer on a warm summer's evening would be quite nice. But equally, I think we know that we just have this really sort of positive you know story to get out there positive message to share and there's that element as well you know enjoying kind of you know getting the book message out and just sharing that with people and hopefully you know at the end of the day I think 
it would be an incredible feeling that if somebody picked up our book, like the way, you know, we picked up Joel Salatin's book, read it, and then it helped them on their journey, you know, that would be incredible. Because, you know, as you said, there's so much challenging things that are going on in the world It's at the minute, you know, and it's it's really hard for people to process all of that. And sometimes you just need a wee glimmer of light, don't you? You just need a wee, I'm going to aim for this and I'm going to go for this and what's my path? And I think if we can play our role in helping others do that and getting into farming or, or just growing growing veg in their garden, anything at all to produce more food in a way that just benefits nature and benefits them would be incredible. I think both of you are a glimmer of light. Absolutely. And I think you will be for future generations. You're doing a great job and it's been fascinating talking to you both. You're both crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Certifiably. Yeah, we'll take it as a compliment. <laughs> oh. No, what an incredible journey and uh, you know and more power to you fantastic and I, I hope that I'd love to come and see you one day that'd be great anytime yeah we'd, we'd love to I think I think we could put the world to rights Jimmy oh, I think yeah. we could properly put the world to rights <laughs> that'd be really great you, yeah. <laughs> you take care lovely to talk to you yeah you too Thank thanks you very so much, much. hi guys welcome back I'm still on my walk with whiskey down on the lovely River Deben. Still got my cold bunged up, but I'm really cheered up by still watching all these fantastic birds. Curlews have gone on, but now I'm greeted by a load of shell ducks. So I hope you enjoyed that chat with Lynn and Sandra. What an inspirational pair. I mean, to live out their dream, you know, having this dream of setting a farm up and despite their worries and lack of experience, they really went for it and they've turned it into a fantastic success. And if you want to find out more about them, get their book. It's a great read. It's called Our Wild Farming Life. And hopefully I will see you all back for another episode of On Jimmy's Farm. Now where's that dog? Whiskey, come here. <laughs>